The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Hello, and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Somehow, within each of our brains, billions of neurons work to create our conscious experience. Now, how does this happen? Why do we experience life in the first person? After over 20 years researching the brain, world-renowned neuroscientist Anil Seth puts forward a radical new theory of consciousness and the self. Anil Seth is Professor of Cognitive and Computational Neuroscience at the University of Sussex. His TED Talk on the brain has had close to 12 million views and is the author of multiple books alongside his blog, Neurobanter. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit ii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. It's now time to welcome Anil Seth to Philosophy for Our Times. I'm probably a different person than I was in early 2020. But I don't feel that way. It feels that there's a continuous essence of me that's persisted from then until now. Would I have noticed the change? Probably not. There could be something going on like self-change blindness. The experience of being me changes, but I don't perceive the change. And this is an argument that I want to leave you with at the end of this talk. And I actually think it's fundamental for understanding consciousness of self and consciousness of the world. That evolution has designed us to perceive ourselves as more stable than we actually are, because all of perception is geared towards keeping ourselves alive, towards regulating the body, making sure we stay alive. We perceive the world around us and ourselves within it with, through, and because of our living bodies. That's the take-home message before we get started. Now, thinking of things this way brings up this issue of consciousness, of course. This is an issue that's on the table immediately. What is consciousness? Can we explain it scientifically? Will it always escape scientific methods? And so on. And the definition of consciousness that I like to start with has to do with the philosopher Thomas Nagel. Now, Thomas Nagel, he says it very simply, really, and this goes back to the 1970s. He says that an organism has conscious mental states if, and only if, there is something it is like to be that organism. Now, there's something it's like to be me, there's something it's like to be you, there's probably something it's like to be an elephant, or a tiger, or a kangaroo. There is probably nothing it is like to be a table, or an iPhone, or a glass of water, or a simple robot these days. There's nothing going on for that system. There's no inner universe. This could be a, a very circular definition of consciousness. 
but it at least gets us on the same page. Consciousness is what goes away when we fall asleep into a dreamless state, or indeed, probably more, more true to say, what goes away under general anesthesia, and what comes back when we come around or wake up. It is not the same thing as intelligence. We don't have to be smart to suffer. It is not the same thing as the ability to generate complex behavior. It's certainly not the same thing as having language, although we humans use language to talk about consciousness. So consciousness fundamentally is any kind of conscious experience whatsoever, which means that, of course, there are other things that can have conscious experiences. Nagel's paper is well known for its title more than anything, What Is It Like to Be a Bat? There's something going on for the bat that makes it like something to be that bat. We will never be able to experience batness for ourselves, but that's because we're not bats. Now, there's another inner universe of bats going on. But can science explain consciousness? On the face of it, it seems that it might not be able to. On the one hand, we have things that are made of stuff, whether they're tables or chairs or brains and bodies. Descartes called this uh, res extensa, the world of the material. And then on the other hand, we have conscious experiences, the experience of redness, the, experience, the sharpness of a pain or the pang of jealousy. Now, these mental states don't seem to be the same kind of thing that mechanisms can explain. Descartes divided the universe this way. His basic insight has been repeated many times over the years. David Chalmers very famously talks about the hard problem of consciousness. He says, it is widely agreed that experience arises from a physical basis, but we have no good explanation of why and how it so arises. Why should physical processing give rise to a rich inner life at all? It seems objectively unreasonable that it should, and yet it does. We are conscious. This seems to be a very, very difficult problem indeed. And in the face of this apparent challenge, there are all sorts of ways of thinking that are on the menu. One of them is, is panpsychism. Consciousness is fundamental and ubiquitous. It is in some sense everywhere and in everything. This sort of explains away the hard problem because if consciousness is fundamental and ubiquitous, you no longer have to explain how it comes to be for certain physical uh, systems. Now the problem with panpsychism is not that it sounds crazy, it's just that it's not testable, it doesn't lead to any testable propositions and doesn't explain anything, which is a problem. Another idea out there is that we're mistaken that there's such a thing as a hard problem or that that conscious experience exists in the way that we tend to think of them. That it's really just the operation of complex mechanisms and the idea that conscious experiences, that there really is a redness to red as we experience it, that's somehow an illusion. Now I think this is a very, it's like a powerful medicine. You take a little bit of this, it's very useful because it inoculates us against taking how things seem as an insight into how they actually are take too much of it and I think you end up going off the rails in saying that consciousness doesn't exist. In fact, consciousness is the only thing we can be really sure of. Without consciousness there's no world, there's no self, there's nothing at all. And this, this perspective is often called illusionism. Now trying to navigate between these two extremes is challenging, but that's you know, what I've been trying to do over the years in an approach that I, you know, with tongue-in-cheek, called the real problem of consciousness. And the real problem of consciousness is not the hard problem of figuring out how and why it's part of the universe in the first place, Chalmers' problem. It's how can mechanisms and processes in the brain and body explain, predict, and control properties of consciousness? Whether they are functional, like what can we do because we're conscious? I can do many things when I experience a glass of water. I can pick it up and drink from it, throw it around, talk to it. I can do many things but critically phenomenological, and that's unfortunately too many syllable word to mean the experiential character of a conscious experience. Visual experiences have a particular 
feeling. Now they're in space, they're objects and people and spaces in between them. Emotional experiences have a different character. Experiences of free will have a different character. Again, if we can understand these differences, instead of treating consciousness as one big scary mystery, we start chipping away at that mystery and doing what science has always done, explaining, predicting when things happen, and being able to control things as they appear. We control, we can, if we can do that, we're constructing a real science of consciousness. It's neither the hard problem, because I'm not trying to say, what is the magic special source that magics consciousness from mere mechanism, and it's not the so-called easy problems of, con of, of neuroscience, which is basically everything about the brain that doesn't involve consciousness at all. No, we're trying to say, these are the properties of consciousness. How do they relate to underlying mechanisms? I'm certainly not the first person to propose this approach. There are many precedents and things like neurophenomenology and, and so on. But the underlying feeling is instead of solving this hard problem, we'll dissolve it. And there's a historical precedent for thinking this way. The parallel isn't complete, but it's illuminating and illustrative. 150 years ago, people thought that life could never be explained in terms of mechanism that maybe we needed to find some elan vital, some spark of life, some special source. And of course, if you treat life as one big scary mystery, that's the temptation. But biologists ended up explaining different properties of living systems by different mechanisms in physics and chemistry, and the heart problem of life was dissolved, was not solved. Now, consciousness is not the same thing as life. There are many differences. The point is that what seems mysterious from one particular point with the concepts and tools that you have may not always seem mysterious. For me, this is the way to understand consciousness, to isolate its properties and account for them. So what are the properties of consciousness? Well, in the book and in my work with my lab, we divide it into three ways. There's conscious level, how conscious you are at any particular time, the difference between anesthesia and normal conscious wakefulness, or other states like the psychedelic state, minimally conscious state. There's conscious content, what we are conscious of when we are conscious. All the objects, people, places, colors, shapes that populate our experience of the world around us. And then an important subset of that is self. The experience of being a self. The self isn't the thing that does the experiencing. The self arises in experience too. And that is a critical part of what being consciousness is all about. And it's probably the aspect of consciousness that each of us clings to most tightly in different ways. The brain is a prediction machine. And that everything that we perceive, everything that we experience, everything that we do is a kind of brain-based prediction. Now just think about what it means to be a brain. And let's take perception as this task of figuring out what's out there in the world. There you are, you're your brain, you're locked inside this bony skull. It's dark in there, it's silent. All you've got to go on as a brain are streams of electrical signals which are only indirectly related to things in the world, whatever they may be. And from these noisy, ambiguous, uncertain electrical signals, the brain conjures forth a world full of things. How does it do that? The idea, and this is an idea that goes way back in science and in philosophy, is that it's a process of inference of some kind. So by inference, I just mean the brain is making its best guess about what's out there based on inherently uncertain, noisy, ambiguous data. The brain is combining its expectations expectations that you're not personally aware of having that can be built deep into the circuitry of the brain, like that light comes from above. Expectations combines those with sensory data, and then what you perceive, this is the hypothesis, is the content of the brain's predictions. It's not a readout of the sensory data. In neuroscience, there's this idea of 
predictive processing or predictive coding as a way of how this might actually happen in the brain. And the idea is simply this, that brain is continually generating predictions about the causes of its sensory signals. Like, is it, you know, is it an object? Is it what color is it? Is it round? Is it rectangular? All these predictions about various levels of description. Is the color stopping here or is it a part of a bigger object? All sorts of things. And sensory data that comes in is, is just calibrating these predictions. It's updating them. It's serving as prediction error. So our brain's perceptual content comes from the inside out and is just reined in by sensory data. This is quite an inversion of how we might typically think of it. It's very intuitive to think of perception as a process of reading out what's already there in the information that comes into our senses. This is very different. It's saying that perceptual content essentially comes from within. It's always a construction, but it's calibrated. It's geared to the world. It's tied to the world in useful ways, and critically, not by a criterion of accuracy. The brain doesn't care whether it's accurately or exhaustively capturing reality. It's just if it's useful. You know, we see colors, we experience colors, not because colors exist, but because perceiving colors is a very useful way for the brain to guide behavior. And this is, this is a radical shift, that, 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 and it's not my idea at all. It's, it goes back to Helmholtz and Kant in some ways, that perception comes from the inside out. And so what we're doing in my lab, one of the things we're doing, and I'll go quickly through this, is trying to put these, these ideas to the test a little bit. It's one thing to say this, but does it actually make sense in terms of the data? Well, one thing that it actually already makes sense of is we know in the brain there are many more connections that go in this inside-out direction than in the outside-in direction. Uh, this is kind of mysterious if you think that uh, perception is done more in the, the outside-in direction. So it makes sense from that perspective. We've also done a bunch of experiments trying to see whether the brain's expectations actually do shape uh, what we experience. So some of these experiments are very simple. We just lead people to do things like expect to see a particular kind of image. We, ex we cue them to expect to see a house or a face. And then we show these houses and faces in various uh, deliberately ambiguous situations. And we ask, how do these expectations affect conscious perception? And what we find is that when people are expecting to see a face, they see that face consciously more quickly and more accurately than if it's unexpected. This is interesting. In a sense, it's like people are used to saying that, you know, I'll believe it when I see it, but actually it's the other way around, that you'll see it if you believe it. In another um, kind of experiment, instead of just asking questions about accuracy of perception, we want to know how deep does it go? How much of our perceptual experience can we explain this way? So one thing we've been doing for a few years now is building computer simulations of unusual kinds of perception things we would call hallucinations. We're all familiar with the fact that we can see things that aren't really there. I mean, colors aren't there, I've already said that, but you, know, you, you look outside on a, a cloudy day, like might be going on, sunny, cloudy day, you can see faces in clouds. The brain has very strong predictions to see faces or expectations. Faces are very important for our brains. So we project faces into sensory data, into clouds, into churches, into whatever we want. A few years ago, with my colleague Kesuke Suzuki, we built this thing called the hallucination machine, which is basically taking a neural network that is um, designed to classify images and tell you what the objects are, and we run it backwards. It's basically a movie of Sussex University campus where I work, where we have projected predictions of dog into an image. And it's not really like photoshopping a dog onto a movie, no. This dogs are organically emerging out of this image in various weird ways, sort of semi-psychedelic ways. It's a panoramic movie, and so if people experience it when wearing a virtual reality headset, 
it's really immersive. You look around and dogs are just coming out of the sky, out of the walls. It's, it's, uh, it's, quite, it's quite trippy. But the important thing here is that it's simulating what experiences are like at the level of this thing called phenomenology. We're trying to get a grasp on the mechanisms that give rise to particular kinds of conscious experience. And this is a way of reverse engineering how perception is happening for all of us all of the time right here and right now. And we're trying to do this more recently, simulating different kinds of hallucination, psychedelic versus what happens in psychosis or what happens in dementia. And when you can figure out the different ways a system can go wrong, you know a lot more about what it's doing when it's not going wrong. So hallucination in this view, what we typically think of hallucination, is really just a form of perception, but now it's an uncontrolled perception. Our perceptual best guesses have lost their grip on the world in ways that make them apparently different from what other people experience. And so perception in the here and now, this is why I call it a controlled hallucination. It comes from within, but it is controlled by the world. It's not saying that nothing exists, stuff exists, but the way in which it appears to us in our experience is everywhere and always a construction. And a larger claim, and this is sort of the agenda, I think, for me for, well, forever probably, is like, how far does this go? You know, we can think about dogs and we can think about faces. What about our experience of the passing of time? What about the fact that objects seem to have backs even though we can't see those backs. How deep into the way in which our experiences arise and flow can we understand them as different forms of prediction? And this to me is a very rich way to think about consciousness, very different from just trying to find the special source. But we will understand in this way how brains generate the experiences that we have. That's what science of consciousness can do. Now, an important part of what we experience in the world, as I've said, is the experience of being a self. And to put it that way, is, is a kind of, um, speaks to, the, to how complicated it is to think about what being a self really means. It's very tempting to think that the self is the thing that is doing the perceiving, that there's a mini-me somewhere inside my skull that is registering all this information and building a picture of the outside world, looking at it and then deciding what to do. This doesn't really stand up. I mean, we don't, again, we don't really need neuroscience to hold lots of Eastern traditions, meditation. If you look for the self, it's not there. There's nothing to be found. The self is part of experience. It arises within our experience. It's not the experiencer. David Hume called the self a bundle of perceptions. So the self is a kind of perception. It's not that which does the perceiving. Part of being a self is the experience of having the body that we have, this object, different from your body, your body. This is central part of what it is to be a self. There are other parts too. There's the experience of perceiving the world from a first-person point of view, the experience of being the cause of actions, what we would call free will, the experience then of being a continuous person over time with a name, a set of memories and identity. These aspects of self can come apart in all sorts of ways, as we know from psychiatry and neurology. They seem to us to appear unified in normal life, but they, they're not, they aren't. And in the lab too, we can begin to tease them apart. If you put a fake hand on a table by a person and hide it, and hide their real hand, and then you stroke the fake hand and the real hand at the same time, then for some people, they develop this slightly weird sensation that the fake hand is somehow part of their body. And people, you know, their, bodies, if their body image has somehow changed. And the idea is that this is, you know, the brain is feeling touch, and it's seeing a hand get touched, and the hand looks like a hand, and so on. So maybe that's the best guess about what is my body. Now, actually, in work that I'm doing in Sussex, led by my colleague Peter Lush, it's not actually that simple. In fact, the degree to which people experience the rubber hand illusion depends on how hypnotically suggestible they are 
And yes, hypnosis is a, real, is a real thing. We all differ in how suggestible we are. And so in this case, although you do have this weird experience, it might well be because that's what the situation is encouraging you to, to experience. You put a fake hand in front of you and stroke, it's like, oh yeah, I really should be having a weird experience. And some people do. Nonetheless, it happens and it shows that the experience of what is our body can't be take it, taken for granted. Our experience of body is not just the body as an object. It's also the experience of being a body. There's this very deep-rooted, inchoate sense of simply being a living organism. Emotions and moods are part of that. This is the body sort of from within. And there is a whole area of perception called interoception, which is all about the brain perceiving and regulating the interior of the body. If you think about it, that's the brain's fundamental job. It's to keep the body and therefore itself alive. Blood pressure has to remain within particular ranges. Blood oxygenation has to remain within particular very tight ranges for us to stay alive. So how does the brain do that? Well, the brain has no direct access to the body in the same way it has no direct access to what's out there in the world. Perception and control of the body has to be a kind of best guess, a prediction. So one idea I've been developing over many years is that this is in fact what's going on, that experiences of emotion, mood, and just generally being a body are distinctive kinds of perception. They're brain-based perceptual best guesses. But in this case, about how good a job the brain is doing of keeping the body alive, not about what's out there in the world. This makes, I think, some kind of useful sense because we've now got a common language to think about experiences of the world and experiences of the self at the most basic level. When the brain is making predictions about visual signals, they behave in particular ways that it makes sense to have experiences that are arranged in space and that are arranged in terms of objects. But when the brain is making predictions that are geared towards regulating the body, it doesn't care where the internal organs are or what shape or color they are. It cares how well that regulation is going so we experience things as being good or bad or likely to be good or bad in the future. That's a very rough theory of emotion. More complicated than that, but it's all about the brain making predictions and reining in those predictions with sensory data. This has a whole super interesting but very distinct area of science called cybernetics. At one time in the 1950s, control theory and engineering was very closely coupled with computer science. Then people built computers that could play chess and forgot about the other half. But this whole area of cybernetics is really telling us that brains are fundamentally about control of the organism. Concepts like feedback come in. Ross Ashby, who was one of the founders of cybernetics, pointed out that every good regulator of a system has to be a model of that system, has to be able to make predictions about how that system is going to behave. In order to keep my blood pressure within the bounds compatible with my staying alive, my brain doesn't want to wait until those bounds are exceeded. It has to anticipate what's going to happen. So there's a very deep reason why the brain uses predictions to interpret sensory data, and they are fundamentally grounded in our nature as living creatures, in our nature, the challenges that the brain has in keeping the body alive. Also explains back where we started. Why do we experience ourselves as relatively continuous and unchanging over time? Well, a strong prior expectation the brain has to have in order to keep us alive is that we don't change. This perception of stability of self is a self-fulfilling prediction that we do indeed remain stable. So we are, from a very basic reason, likely to perceive ourselves as more stable than we actually are in order to control ourselves in the face of all the challenges of the body and the world. So this path, thinking about how we perceive the world and then turning it inside to the body, leads at least me to think that consciousness is much more closely tied to life 
than we might otherwise think. It's not just a program you can run on a computer. It's not part of the simulation or the matrix. Consciousness is deeply rooted in our nature as living machines. And I think we can only understand our nature as conscious organisms and as conscious cells in light of that. Just to finish, this takes us all the way back to Descartes again. One of the things Descartes said was that other animals were merely beast machines, that their flesh and blood nature had no bearing on their, whether they were conscious or not, that they in fact weren't conscious or didn't have the conscious rational minds that we humans had. They were just flesh and blood automata. I think exactly the opposite is true, that our consciousness arises and is rooted in our nature as flesh and blood creatures. That applies to other animals as well. Many implications of all this, which I'm not going to, I'm only going to just state. Free will. Free will is another of the big problems in consciousness. Free will is not some mysterious, uncaused cause that changes the flow of physical events. It's another kind of perception. We all experience different inner universes. We're all having different conscious experiences, even if we're in the same environment. And we may radically underestimate the degree of perceptual diversity that's out there. There's a vast space of other minds, octopuses. I love octopuses. They have very different ways of engaging with their world. They're going to have very different experiences, especially of being a conscious self. There are more neurons in an octopus's arm than in its central brain, in the arms put together. And finally, people often wonder whether artificial intelligence is on a trajectory to become conscious. Maybe when AI reaches some threshold, the lights come on. Well, consciousness is not coextensive. It's not about intelligence only. And if, it, if consciousness is in fact more deeply rooted in our nature as living machines, then for an AI to be conscious, it might also have to be alive. Consciousness depends on wetware and not hardware. So I'll finish just with this, the same statement. I started with the central message uh, of the book that I've written, which is that we perceive the world around us and ourselves within it with, through, and because of our living bodies. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit ii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.